Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour on Monday. Because it was a bank holiday, we just gave you two stories. Very interesting stories, great guest. But today we have five stories. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good. How are you, Michael? Slight indigestion today. I think there was too much sun, pizza and beer yesterday. I've sort of been suffering slightly, yeah. but... We're going to get through the show and be fine. You guys, you're weak when in the face of the sun. I'm like, 27 degrees is like my cold. Like my kind of like, it's temperate. My peak is mm. like 34. That's my that's my ideal temperature. <laughs> in March this year, on the first anniversary of Britain's first lockdown, Boris Johnson said that post-pandemic, his biggest priority would be education. It's been an absolutely... Uh, unimaginable year for, uh, for, for school children, for university students, uh, for everybody in, in education. Uh, they've put up with incredible uh, privations uh, in order to, to help us, the whole country, get through. And our, whole, our future as a country depends on us now repaying that generation, making sure they get the education they need. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, for me, that's the, the biggest priority. So in that same press conference, Boris Johnson celebrated the fact that he had hired Sir Kevin Collins as the government's education recovery czar. He was going to be giving advice on what policies would need to be put into place so that schools could effectively help kids get back into the position they would have been were the lockdown not there. That includes things like English and maths, but also, and according to the czar, it was supposed to include things like music, drama, sports. He had advised the government would need to set aside £15 billion towards helping kids catch up after COVID lockdowns. And today, the government has pledged only one-tenth of that. They promised only £1.4 billion. That's mainly to go towards individual or small group tutoring. Obviously, a tenth of the recommended figure is completely pathetic. Kevin Collins has resigned in protest. In his resignation letter to the Prime Minister, he said, when we met last week, I told you that I do not believe it will be possible to deliver a successful recovery without significantly greater support than the government has to date indicated it intends to provide. I am concerned that the apparent savings offered by an incremental approach to recovery represent a false economy as learning losses that are not addressed quickly are likely to compound. Later in the resignation letter, Collins said, I do not believe it is credible that a successful recovery can be achieved of a programme of support of this size. Now, the story about the resignation, that broke just um, an hour before we went live, so the government are yet to give any significant response. But Collins' decision does come at the end of a day where ministers have struggled to defend the paltry sum they have put aside for education. On Sky this morning, Gavin Williamson was challenged as to why the package was so much smaller than that suggested by the government's own advisor. I mean, you appointed Sir, Sir Kevin Collins as the catch-up czar. I mean, do you trust him? Do you agree with him? So, so we've been working incredibly closely no, at all no, stages. For, for, forgive me. For, for, uh, forgive me. That's a, that's, that's a very straightforward question. Do you trust him? Do you believe in what he's trying to achieve? Yes well, or no? Absolutely. And these are why the interventions... Absol this is well, why the interventions you say, that we are... He says, oh, he says you need £15 billion. You've given him 1.4 in this, 1.7 earlier on, as you say, 
But he says you need 15 billion. If you trust him, if you absolutely agree with him, why isn't he getting that money? So what we've been doing is working with Sir Kevin on a whole package of measures. One of those is the expansion of our tutoring programme. There's a billion pounds going into that. The other key element of uh, that expansion and sort of support for schools and children is actually through teacher quality as well. That's why we're committing £400 million to early years and driving up teacher quality because actually these are interventions that we've worked on together. If he says, you know, to to implement what needs to be implemented, you need £15 billion, why is that money not coming forward? Did you fight for that money? Have you been told you can't have that money? What's going on? Well, what we're doing is we're building up a whole set of interventions, including the £1.7 billion that's already been committed, complemented by the £1.4 billion. These are all measures that are going to have a direct impact on children. They're going to have a direct impact in terms of actually the amount of tutoring children are going to be able to get. This has far too long been the preserve of those who have been the wealthiest and only been able to afford it. We're making sure that that's expanded so all children are able to benefit. But we recognise there's more work to be done. This is part of a process. And this is why we're launching the review in terms of how we can best support children in terms of their schooling. And one of those elements is about time. Is there extra time that is required for children to be able to be, able to be in the classroom? Not just for study, but also for enrichment activity as well. well if, and if that's, that's all if, if, what we're but, undertaking. Now, you'll have noticed that however many times you say £1.7 billion is what they they put towards recovery education earlier and £1.4 billion, which is what they've announced today, it does not add up to anywhere near £15 billion. So there's no point in just keep on repeating those numbers as if every every time you you say them, that that adds up to to a higher figure. It was a really pathetic response there, I thought, from Gavin Williamson, especially, and I don't know if you noticed, the way that in answer to the first question, he sort of brought up teacher quality. Actually, you know, I thought the subtle message there was the problem is teachers. The problem is teachers, which is generally the line we get from this government when they're put under pressure when it comes to their horrific record when it comes to protecting kids' education. Um, now, Gavin Williamson there has suggested more money might be in the pipeline, but as Colin's resignation shows, the people close to where decisions are made have very little confidence these investments are going to come forward. I imagine that, that Collins hopes that by resigning, he will force someone's hand. But we know that this government don't always budge when they're responding to pressure of this sort. You noticed in that, uh, that interview there that Gavin Williamson's was pushed on whether or not he, he demanded this money and it was it was turned down. Um, what we do know from the BBC is that a much bigger and more ambitious plan, which was supposed to cost um, over £10 billion, was under discussion. That was as, as recently as last week. But then it got blocked by the Treasury, by Rishi Sunak. Um, We've got a few more quotes from Collins in a moment. First of all, Dahlia, it is not really out of step from this government. We've seen them be willing and keen, in fact, to scrap free school meals for for students during the holidays over lockdown. Now, after all of this rhetoric about our top priority is going to be recovery for these kids, they're now giving one-tenth of the sum that was recommended by their own advisor. 
it wasn't that long ago that the Tories and, and other people in the media were trying to essentially bully school teachers into going into unsafe working conditions on the basis of, you know, think of the children, think of their education, uh, which seems very hypocritical now when you see the abs- this absolutely paltry sum of money that has been set aside for children to catch up from the significant disruption that they have faced as a result of this pandemic. But, you know, I mean, one of the most effective ways to entrench the class system, both now, but also in the long term and for future generations, is to sort of chip away at the provisions that working class or lower middle class children rely on, Um, you know, whether it's through punishing parents who are struggling to provide a stable life for their children, whether it's punishing the children themselves um, through things like exclusions or bringing policing into the education system, which is again, a trend that we're seeing in the government, in this Tory government, or through what we're seeing here, which is basically systematically allowing children to fall through incredibly consequential gaps during times of crisis. And that's, I think, so crucial to the way that this Tory government has operated through systemic neglect and systemic incompetence, like an almost deliberate incompetence. Um, You know, the state doesn't just exercise through active violence. You don't just experience state power when you're on on the other end of a truncheon, of a police truncheon. It's also through being systemically left with nothing in times of crisis. You know, we are in a crisis that has not only financially stretched a lot of people and gutted their savings, but it's created a situation in which there's been a lot of loss and a lot of that loss has been collective. For example, you know, the loss of access to schools or childcare was, you know, experienced by everyone um, when schools were shut. But the ability to recuperate from those losses um, has been left only possible for very wealthy people. Um, so, you know, and this and the school meal saga both together are perfect examples of this. By, by choosing to be inadequate, by choosing to be scarce, to withdraw or to do nothing, the state is actively producing inequality um, that will last for, for many generations. And this is part of a much broader story, particularly of this government, which is to reduce and cut any government function that pertains to care or social support while bolstering and emphasizing the parts of the government that punish and evict and dispossess and which is why you see sort of this kind of stuff happening alongside things like the um, policing bill Um, you know Boris can easily say oh austerity is over because in many ways the job of austerity which is to reduce the state to its purely punitive disciplinary functions has kind of been achieved You know, we see the government sort of failing to provide these essential services at times of crisis. So we really need to keep a keen eye on who is going to be stepping in to provide these services where the government has failed. My guess is it will be, you know, big tech, private companies that kind of are very similar to Uber or Deliveroo, which are based on very low labor costs, um, very low setup costs, highly exploitable labor practices. Um, who hide behind their reputations as, oh, we're just technology companies, we're not employers, Um, you can't hold us responsible for anything that happens as a result of our practices, and allows them to also flout sort of local regulations. 
I can see those kinds of companies. And we already have seen loads of apps coming in that um, basically take over these kinds of care functions. I can see them really monopolizing the gaps that are being left by the state at this time, as they seem to offer the only accessible and cheap options for these kinds of services. Um, and there's nowhere else for working class people to turn. So I think it will be that and a combination of the more kind of typical outsourcing of contracts to companies like those we've seen, like the ones that we saw with the school meals incident over the summer. Um, so to sum up, basically, you know, systemic neglect um, and inaction is kind of part of a long historical trend of how the Tories have restructured the British state. But we have a lot to be wary of um, when it comes to to what might come next, what might come uh, to replace it. No, I, I think you're absolutely right to emphasise how, I suppose, pathetic this is when you compare it to the rhetoric that was being used to get teachers back into classrooms. Particularly, the you know, the instance of this I remember was the week before Christmas, when we knew that the, the Kent variant, um, which is now called the Alpha variant, I think that's a reasonable decision by the WHO to, re, to rename them, not, not, not with places. For now, I'm going to call it the Kent variant. The Kent variant um, was already completely um, out of control in this country. Cases were rocketing. Some schools, such as Greenwich, Greenwich Local Authority, they wanted to shut schools just for an extra week so that people would be able to self-isolate before seeing older relatives. The government sued them. They sued them. They say, missing a week of education is so, so disastrous that we will force you to stay open, even if, you know, everyone can see it was an incredibly dangerous and stupid thing to do. Now, this government who claimed to care so, so much about education, they're only willing to stump up one-tenth of the cost that their own advisor recommends is needed to help kids catch up after those those lockdowns. I mean, the whole thing's absolutely disgraceful. Um, I want to go back to comments um, from Kevin Collins because they are really very damning. And before I read you some quotes from the resignation letter, he also has some quotes in the Times. And the former Education Recovery Commissioner said, the support announced by government so far does not come close to meeting the scale of the challenge and is why I have no option but to resign from my post. The pandemic has affected all pupils but hit disadvantaged children hardest. The package of support announced yesterday falls far short of what is needed. It is too narrow, too small and will be delivered too slowly. It betrays an undervaluation of the importance of education for individuals and as a driver of a more prosperous and healthy society, a half-hearted approach risks failing hundreds of thousands of pupils. So, I mean, he couldn't really be more categorical there in his criticism of, of the decision that has been has been made. So the idea, Gavin Williams saying, oh, this is just fine. This is just the first phase of more money that's going to come. It doesn't really wash now, the Times had a bit more detail about the circumstances which led to this announcement this morning. They say that Boris Johnson had been shown an outline of Collins' um, plans, and they said that was for a £15 billion package. As I said, the BBC said over £10 billion, so the Times have got £15 billion. And they say it would have involved 100 hours of extra schooling each year from 2022, and that would have included a focus on art, music and sports. So proper holistic, because we, I think there will be a battle in, in government at this period of time where you say the problem is is kids are two or three months behind when it comes to grammar and maths. And actually the argument that needs to be had is that if you're in that very important phase of, of development and you've been locked in your house for a few months, then it's actually those social aspects that are going to be just as important as, as maths and, and English. And Kevin Collins, who was hired as the education czar, seemed like he was very clear about that. The sense I get is that Rishi Sunak said, no, 
you know, why are we wasting this money on, on arts and arts and sports? So I should say, yes, the, the Times also said that whilst um, Boris Johnson had been shown this and was, you know, willing to let it go ahead, it was vetoed by Rishi Sunak. Of course, this does not mean that Boris Johnson can wash his hands of responsibility. He's the prime minister. If Rishi Sunak is being, is making this, this decision which condemns kids um, to... I don't want to say condemns him to failure, but I mean, puts them at a, a severe disadvantage, then he's the prime minister, he can overrule it. Clearly, he hasn't done that in this case. The result is that in the end, the package works out as only £50 per student. And remember, this is a package which is over three years. This is incredibly, incredibly paltry. And we can see how that compares to other catch-up funds around the world. So the UK is so far and committing £50 per head per student. That compares to £1,600 per head per student in the United States and £2,500 per head in the Netherlands. Now, they are serious sums, which to me look more appropriate to meeting the kind of intense challenge that the past year faces us with. There were, as we've often said on this show, there were some seriously difficult decisions to be made in, in government, about schools, during COVID, and it was inevitable that kids were going to lose out on you know, a decent amount of education and a decent amount of the kind of socialising that you need to do when you're of, of that age. Those problems were always going to happen. What the government's job is to do is to say, we will do everything in our power to make up for that. That's the rhetoric you heard at the beginning of this segment from Boris Johnson when he was speaking in March, but it's not what their policy looks like. It's not what they've committed to. Um, what's going to happen next is, is very difficult to say. I hope Marcus Rashford comes out against this because he seems to be the only person who can force U-turns at this particular period of time. But if nothing changes soon, then this is, I suppose, one of the biggest disgraces I've seen in public policy since the start of this pandemic, basically, because it's so avoidable. All you have to do is cough up some cash for the future generations who have sacrificed so much, basically, to help people who are older than themselves. Young people weren't particularly at risk from this from this virus. They've missed out on a year so that older members of our society can be safer. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying, oh, the older people owe them. We as a society owe them, and we're not currently fulfilling that obligation. Next story. Tim Martin, the owner of pub chain Weatherspoons, has always been one of the most high-profile advocates of Brexit. He was one of the few prominent businessmen in favour of no deal. So not just a Brexiteer, he was a no deal Brexiter. To jog your memory, here he is at a rally for the Brexit party. The way they're striping us up is to say, oh yeah, we will honour the referendum result, but we won't go for no deal. Do people think we're stupid? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid they do. What is called no deal really means free trade. And free trade, no deal. Means we save 39 billion quid on day one. When you've got 39 billion quid, that's not a cliff edge, is it? I suppose the first thing to say is that a completely stupid comment. No deal didn't equal free trade. It equal trade on WTO terms, which isn't free trade. You still have tariffs and quotas. But in any case, that's not what I want to talk about today because no deal didn't happen. That's just to show you how hard a Brexiteer he was and indeed you know, pretends to still be. And the reason it seems quite the contrast is because now he is saying, oh, no, 
freedom of movement ending has actually caused my pubs some problems and we need a more liberal immigration system. This is from quotes given to The Telegraph, um, an article about Tim Martin, um, suggesting that we should have more liberal immigration controls, similar to the ones we had before the referendum or before Brexit happened. He told the paper, the UK has a low birth rate, a reasonably liberal immigration system controlled by those we have elected as distinct from the EU system would be a plus for the economy and the country. America, Australia and Singapore have benefited for many decades from this approach. Immigration combined with democracy works. Now, you can see there in that quote, he's trying to make this intervention very consistent with him being a Brexiteer. He's saying, let's have more immigration, but let's just decide it democratically instead of having free movement. Obviously, you can argue that we consented to take part in free movement. So on one level, it was democratic, but we'll, we'll put that to one side again. Important to remember is that this intervention comes as industry bosses warn that pubs and restaurants are suffering from labor shortages. So they're having to shut during lunchtime shifts due to shortages of workers. Quoted in the same Telegraph piece was the chief executive of TGI Friday speaking about this issue. He's called Robin Cook and he said, it's a perfect storm. There's the arduous process of hiring from the EU and the change of statuses around the new visa process, which is more cumbersome and less user-friendly. Other people are not moving back here because of the situation with COVID. Now, on one level, yeah, if you, if you look at that quote in isolation from Tim Martin, he's saying, no, this has got nothing to do with the, the hard Brexit I wanted. I wanted to have Brexit and a really liberal immigration system, but just one that the British government controlled. Now, I mean, if you look at the, the rhetoric of the campaign and the, the government we've, we've ended up with, that was never going to happen. Theresa May, Boris Johnson, all of them read Brexit as a sign that we should have a more restrictive immigration system. That's why we've got Prince Patel as, as Home Secretary. So this idea that you can have your cake and eat it. So no, I want Brexit. Analyze of immigration is already a bit ridiculous. But to me, this reads as someone who campaigned for a policy which would limit immigration and is now a bit pissed off. He has to pay higher wages to get people to, to come and work for him. Is that your, your interpretation as well? This was an entirely predictable outcome. You know, we, we always knew that, that that low wage but very essential labour in the UK has been carried out by by migrants for, for many decades now. Um, it's the work that basically citizens don't want to do, work that is, you know, punishing, it's difficult, it's poorly waged, poorly conditioned, poorly regulated, often happens on social hours. Eliminating freedom of movement was always going to hit those industries because, you know, freedom of movement specifically from the EU was always going to hit those industries because they rely on that labor force to function. And we have swathes of data, endless amounts of data that demonstrate that even when companies or these industries specifically seek out UK born and particularly UK born white workers, they struggle to fill that fill those gaps. So you know, the, the the absence of migrant workers was never going to actually result in these workforces being taken over by citizens. But I think it's very important that we kind of don't celebrate this moment as some kind of, you know, funny or fun gotcha moment for for Tim Mar for the Tim Martins of the world. Because whilst, of course, you know, the post-Brexit um, experience for migrants, especially for EU migrants, is set to be extremely uh, brutal, we, we shouldn't glamorize, I think, the immigration system that we had when we were in the EU, because that immigration system was in many ways centered around providing countries like the UK and particularly cities like London um, with a highly exploitable workforce, um, you know, a workforce that doesn't have to be treated with, with dignity and doesn't have to be treated particularly 
well. We often, you know, we often passingly said, and particularly during the referendum, we passingly said that migrant that you know companies like Weatherspoons hire migrant labor because migrant labor is cheaper as if you know that's just like a given or an inherent feature of migrant labor human beings aren't born more or less cheap than other human beings right like they are made cheaper through a variety of you know very violent social and economic forces that mean that certain groups of people are forced to work much harder for less money than others and those forces are things like racism, you know, immigration systems, colonialism and inequity between countries. So I think there was always that kind of problem with the pro-Remain, sort of more liberal pro-Remain campaigns that celebrated that kind of work ethic or, and contribution of migrant workers to the UK without being aware of the sort of profound brutality and, and the exploitation that produces that very migrant work ethic. You know, that that migrant work ethic is essentially a symptom of the fact that some people are pushed to accept really shit working conditions um, because they're seen as less valuable as human beings and they have fewer options. What I think we're going to see now with this kind of particular configuration and um, this call for an Australia style system of immigration is essentially an intensification of those practices of creating exploitable workforces through Im an immigration system. You know, I don't actually think we will see significantly less immigration. I think there will be certain recruitment drives to encourage um, labor-based immigration to the UK because of those reasons of why immigration is so essential to the, the particular economic model we have. But what we're going to see is immigration turned into a much more brutal and precarious experience where the rights of migrants are exclusively tied to your employment, which means that your employer holds far much more power over you, uh, where things like unionizing and political participation um, become very difficult, where migrants are being subject to more surveillance and more policing. So in a sense, I think that the post-Brexit approach to immigration is likely to not be a massive diversion from what we had before. I think we'll actually end up seeing similar, similar because of, you know, the need to compensate for these losses in the labor market, similar levels of immigration. But immigration and, and movement on the terms of the British state and on the terms of British capital and therefore an intensification of the most exploitative parts of the immigration system that was already in place. How very depressing. So you're, you're saying the post-Brexit immigration system might be quite similar to the one that went before, but it's just going to give people like Tim Martin more power. Exactly. The, the last you know, thing the, I want is for that idiot to have more power. <laughs> exactly. And more power over the lives of the workforce, the, their workers, which means that wages are going to fall even lower, working conditions are going to fall even lower. And the difference in those in wages and conditions between migrant workers and citizen workers is going to be much bigger which will, again, make conditions for everyone worse overall. A little nugget of, of optimism there for you all. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you, you've got to tell it like it is, even if it's not a, a, you know, a cheerful truth for us all to dwell on. Thanks to the grillings he's given government ministers on Good Morning Britain, Piers Morgan is considered to be one of the toughest political interviewers in Britain. So when Keir Starmer announced he'd be granting the pundit a one-on-one -on -one primetime interview, many eyebrows were raised. However, on ITV's life stories, what many saw as a gamble appears to have paid off. And the Labour leader was widely praised for showing his human side, including the moment he opened up about the death of his mother. You spent a lot of time with her when she had to go and 
have treatment and stay in and day after day, weeks after weeks sometimes. You were young when this was going on. My mum got Stills disease. It's a disease that attacks your joints. For some people it comes and goes. For mum it came and it came and it came again. My dad was totally devoted to her. And I remember being at home and he phoned and he said, your mum's not going to make it. Can you tell the others? And uh, that hit me. Was it cruel of your father to make you do that? To do it that way? No. He wasn't going to leave her side. No way he was coming out of that hospital, even to his own kids. He was going to stay there with her. He always did. At her side, in the Hyde Peninsula unit. And if he couldn't be there, he'd sleep on the, on the chairs outside. There was no way he was coming home. He wouldn't leave her. This was the same every time she was in hospital. He wouldn't leave her side. But when she died, it broke him. He never recovered, did he? He lived, but he didn't recover. Now, that was a very, very moving clip, and I watched the whole thing. Keir Starmer does come across very well. He comes across as someone with you know, a degree of emotional intelligence, and there is a contrast between him and Boris Johnson. I think if Boris Johnson was in a, a similar situation, actually, in fact, I, I have no idea how it would go. Because, I mean, it, it is worth saying... People said this was a risk. I'd never actually watched live stories before. It turns out it is the most softball show <laughs> I've probably ever seen. It, it, if you hadn't watched it, it's sort of basically lots of clips of people who really like Keir Starmer, so his friends and his, his allies in the party saying really nice things about him. And then Piers Morgan asks him a softball question and he gives an answer. Now, that's not to say, I mean, it was, it was a good idea he did this, evidently. He also, as I say, comes across well, especially talking about things like his his parents. Obviously, what his advisors are hoping is that this will turn around public opinion about him and about his leadership of the Labour Party. Dahlia, I want to know from you, will things like this make any difference? I feel huge sympathy for anyone that experiences the loss of a loved one. And especially in in those kind of circumstances, it's it's incredibly tough and it's hard not, you know, it's, it's difficult to listen to and it's hard not to feel um, sympathetic. But I, I think the problem is that this isn't, and I guess it's not intended to be that anyway, but it, it's not a useful interview for really understanding what the Labour Party under Keir Starmer would do if it had power or for people you know, who are concerned with, with what the choices of, of, of who will form you know, a government in the future are, are going to be. And I, I understand that there is a need to kind of elicit a sense of personal connection to a leader, but that's not that it can't cover for a lack of substance you know we we still don't have a path to power we still don't have a convincing and achievable and ambitious program that matches the crisis that we face matches the scale of the crisis that we face and i think that the kind of like quite gushing response of the political and media class is is kind of indicative of how little these of how these kind of classes actually view what politics is and how how you know the idea that they think that by kind of cultivating the personal side of of Keir Starmer that can somehow compensate for lack of vision it's kind of that logic that underpins that sort of politics by focus groups which is this idea that you can kind of just like trick people into feeling affinity with a party or a leader and make them vote for you even if you're not giving them concrete things to vote for 
and it's it's also you know I'll just end on on this, but the the reputation of Keir Starmer as being sort of cold or or detached, it's not because we haven't heard enough about his personal life. It's because he's treated his party members with quite a lot of contempt. He's per, you know he's he's suspended a former leader that was incredibly popular amongst members, and he doesn't seem to have any kind of personal conviction or, or drive. And rather, he just kind of follows wherever he thinks the wind is going. So that's where that sense that Kisama comes off as kind of distant and attacked and detached comes from. And I'm sure that you know this will be this does count as you know in in the context of of recent media appearances um, for the Labour Party is up there with one of the better ones. But I don't think that's saying much, and I don't think it compensates for what went down in those in those previous interviews when it comes to you know front benches being asked what does the Labour Party stand for and being told that it's confidential. Let's go to one of the most over-the-top gushing responses to this interview, actually. As I said, the interview was quite dignified. Some of the responses potentially less so. This was Chris Bryant, um, who's obviously a Keir Starmer fan. He's a Labour MP. He tweeted, A lot of us have always known that Keir Starmer was a decent, honest man, full of the milk of human kindness and passion for life and justice. He goes on every interview he has done recently, including Matt Ford and Live Stories, goes to prove the UK would be safer in his hands. Does it prove that? I'm not sure. It proves he's got some emotions. The milk of human kindness. I haven't heard that one before. Um, an interesting phrase to say about your leader. Maybe he's looking for a promotion. In terms of whether this will change things, um, we should remember the interview. You know, it's a prime time slot. It's watched by 1.6 million people. Not an insignificant number of people, but you know, as Dahlia says, this is telling us he's not a psychopath is not necessarily telling he's got an amazing vision for the country 1.6 million people will it have changed their mind it's still you know only 1.6 million people it compares to for an idea of how many people watch tv at any one time 3.7 million people watched coronation street which aired immediately before you might say a slightly unfair comparison that's one of itv's most successful shows so let's compare it with previous episodes of life stories um, that's Piers Morgan's interview show. Captain Tom's interview got 2.9 million. Gemma Collins got 2.6 million viewers in February. So I suppose you know more people were potentially staying inside. That was a lockdown. Hard to compare these things. Basically, the interview went well. It is not going to be a game changer. The guy needs some policies as well as an ability to probably quite genuinely uh, make it seem like he's you know a decent family man. Let's go on to our final story, which is another related to Keir Starmer. A new poll shows that a majority of voters think Keir Starmer should resign as Labour leader. You can see the figures here. The poll is from Redfield and Winton. Among all voters, 37 people think he should stand down now. 28% of people don't. Um, now, you might say that doesn't mean much when it's Tory voters anyway, but it's the Labour voters that I think matter here. 40% of Labour voters who voted Labour in 2019 want him to stand down. 35% of people want him to stay in the job. You can see that the only group of voters who want him to remain Labour leader are Lib Dems. Unfortunately for Keir Starmer, there weren't very many of them in 2019. We can go to the question slightly different. Um, should he be replaced before the next election, so before the 2024 election? This one is quite significant, I think. So here, let's just focus on Labour voters. 49% of Labour voters want him to stand down before 2024. Only 16% of people oppose that happening. So it's a very small amount of people who are committed to Keir Starmer's standing to be the next Labour Prime Minister. 
Now, alongside the disastrous results in Hartlepool, it's polls like these that might explain why the party's Blairites are getting ever more desperate to purge the left. Why? How does the logic work? Because if Keir Starmer has to resign, he'll clearly be replaced by someone else. That goes without saying. And they don't want that to be a left-winger. They don't want left-wing members to be able to vote for that left-winger. They basically want to destroy the power of the left in the party so that if Keir Starmer falls, another right-winger will replace him. And I think this is the context in which we should read one particularly deranged op-ed, um, which was published by the political director of the Tony Blair Institute in The Times. So it's titled, Labour Must Encourage Open Debate or It Will Die. From that title alone, I wouldn't have guessed this was calling for a massive purge of the left in the Labour Party. Debate purges don't normally go together. However, this is a particularly incoherent article by Ryan Wayne, as I said, political director of the Tony Blair Institute. And after blaming the left for Labour's loss in Hartlepool, which was a seat obviously held under Corbyn, um, the author writes of the left that wrapped up in identity politics, their views become incontestable. Arguing against them is a political minefield of terminology where it's very easy to get blown up by the wrong word. The consequences can be fatal. We end up with a so-called progressive party unable to tolerate different points of view, a party where preaching has replaced debate. Whether it's the endless propagating of an anti-Western worldview, fighting over the rights of biological women to have safe spaces, or tweeting a picture of the Ku Klux Klan alongside the Sewell Report, Labour's backseat drivers are drowning out moderate voices. A lot to say about this. So first of all, Labour did not lose Hartlepool because of trans rights. They probably lost it because of Brexit. Also, what's obviously ridiculous about this is to suggest that Keir Starmer is drowned out by people on the left talking about issues he's not necessarily campaigning on. The people who get airtime on the radio and on television, you know, and the news bulletin, most importantly, that's not left-wing backbenchers. That's Keir Starmer and his ministers. What this writer is talking about is Twitter. Right. He's saying there are lots of backbenchers who say things on Twitter, which Keir Starmer doesn't agree with. That's not how votes are won or lost. Clearly, though, this guy is looking for someone to blame. He goes on. The aggressive left just doesn't get it. Their prescription following the Hartlepool defeat involves resurrecting the spirit of Corbynism and further entrenchment in the retweet-inducing, self-affirming world of identity politics. There is only one solution if Labour want to win. This wing of the party must be removed from the front line. No ifs, no buts. Firing Rebecca Long-Bailey and removing the whip from Jeremy Corbyn saw a bounce in the polls, but this isn't just a popular thing to do, it's the right thing to do. Labour must be about much more than internal battles and self-serving, introspective cultural issues. It should be prepared to debate. Again, lots of things to say about this particular passage. So first of all, the idea of this poll bounce doesn't really stack up. So obviously, Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from the whip in November. Labour were doing reasonably well in the polls that winter, but that was more because of the death toll, which was piling up because of the Tories' catastrophic handling of coronavirus. Now, if you don't believe me, let's abstract Labour's polling from Tory performance and just look at how people were thinking about Keir Starmer, whether or not he was performing well or badly in his job. Now, as this YouGov data um, shows, it was when the whip was withdrawn from Jeremy Corbyn that Keir Starmer's ratings really start to plummet. 
So in fact, it was that decision which I think we can probably infer really damaged Keir Starmer in the polls, far from pleasing the electorate. However, of course, we don't really need to bother with polling to see how stupid this argument was. The author starts a paragraph saying the left have to be purged, and then he ends up saying we have to be prepared to debate. The two are not consistent. <laughs> they are not compatible with one another. If you want to have a party where you have open debate and say, look, Keir Starmer is the leader. He sets the direction of the Labour Party, but we're not scared of having people like Jeremy Corbyn or Rebecca Long-Bailey or John McDonnell disagreeing with us because we're an open party. We have the confidence in our ideas as Keir Starmer and the leadership that we can you know, have a, have a grown-up debate. No, this guy is saying, you've got to kick them all out. That's the opposite of a debate. He goes on to say, this is a key tenet of progressive politics, an ability to hear different perspectives, build on them and reach a new unifying position rather than just sitting on the fence. And his you know, final argument, main argument is the left must be purged. Labour's leadership must act quickly and decisively, taking a stand against the aggressive left. If they can't debate, disagree, but fall into line, they must leave. It will be painful. Twitter will be an unedifying spectacle and fissures will likely be permanent. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this ridiculous article. I mean, for a start, he's kind of talking about democratic centralism. So it's sort of um, a bit of a Stalinist principle. It's probably some good arguments for it, but it's not an argument that he seems to want to make. He's saying you have an internal debate and the, the argument is won. And then if the argument is won, not in your favor, you all shut up. Every single person in the party has to spout the party line. Even on Twitter, you can't say something which the leadership hasn't approved. That's a really, really centralizing idea. Very, very disciplinarian, very Stalinist, yet he seems to think this is consistent with saying the Labour Party needs to be open. What do you think is, is going on here? What's going through this guy's mind? He works at the Tony Blair Institute, right? Is that correct? He's political director at the Tony Blair Institute. So I presume okay, so, he had Tony Blair's blessing to write this piece. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's his job to come up with an argument to fit the line, right? So by hook or by crook, no matter how incoherent, he needed to find a way of looking at what's happening right now in the Labour Party and using it as an excuse to purge the left. But the notion that the left is making the la is making Labour into a party that cannot tolerate disagreement and, and, and is dishing out fatal consequences to, to those who divert from a particular line is so delusional, especially in the context um, of the Labour Party. Corb Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynism itself actively courted, some would say too much, and tried to include people from across the different traditions in the Labour Party. There were many people in his various cabinets that did not come from, you know, the Corbynite or the McDonnell um, tradition. And it was they who tried to destroy him, not the other way around. If you think about this idea of, you know, oh, we have dis we have, you know, discussions within the party. And even if you disagree with the outcome, you take you take it on board. Sorry, is that not what Jeremy Corbyn did with nuclear? Uh, you know, nuclear disarmament. We, Jeremy Corbyn's, one of his most passionate positions is for nuclear disarmament, is for ending Trident. And, you know, but when there was a debate within the party and party members, I think it was party members, maybe it was the PLP, said, no, we want to be in favor of Trident. He said, okay, it's not my position, but it's the party democracy and I have to respect that. The position on the EU referendum, Jeremy Corbyn's not massively pro-Remain. You know, he's historically a, 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 you know, a Eurosceptic, but 
that was the party position. That was the way that the members voted. He, 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 and he, he, he did that. That's what he respected. Um, you know, and it wasn't Corbyn that purged swathes of the party membership um, who were seen to divert from, you know, the position of the Labour Party establishment at the time. And it was Keir Starmer who, let's not forget, suspended Jeremy Corbyn and sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey because of a tweet. So who here is actually punishing diversity of thought? Who here is intolerant of other views and is dishing out fatal consequences for those who depart from the party line or depart from, you know, even just the establishment line within the party? And also, who here is invested in identity politics and, you know, cultural issues as if cultural issues are not, you know, part of what a political party should be invested in? But is it the people who are fighting for, you know, better infrastructure, for universal access to services? Or is it those who spend every waking moment frothing at the mouth about, you know, metropolitan North London elites with their, you know, cappuccinos while providing no concrete policies and no po concrete program whatsoever, but just trafficking off this kind of very superficial lines of division um, that they're trying to outline? So, this kind of story that is being told here, it's not grounded in reality, um, you know, but unfortunately, this kind of flipping of the reality, you know, this direct inversion where people who are incredibly tolerant are being portrayed as deeply intolerant um, is, is, and people who are deeply intolerant are positioning themselves as bastions of tolerance. It actually is seeming to cut through a little bit. And so I think the left needs to be far more confident in sort of pointing out this hypocrisy and this projection and not acting shy um, when accused of things that are are clearly not true. A very effective rebuttal. It's a shame you can't get that published in the Times. Let's focus on who this guy is um, a little more, um, because I presume, you know, we can get something published in the Times, connected guy, political director at the Tony Blair Institute, I presume, well, I mean, you can basically assume, right, that he had Tony Blair's blessing to write this. We know Keir Starmer is fairly close to people around Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, for example. Another thing, um, we know about this guy, and this is thanks to Solomon Hughes, who's an investigative journalist, is that he formally launched a party, launched a third party. And no, it wasn't even Change UK, because Change UK, compared to the party this guy started, was a roaring success. He started the new centrist party called United for Change. I think we can bring up um, Solomon Hughes' tweets here. So he, he, you can you can see, um, that I think this is from his LinkedIn, where it's showing that he was the CEO and co-founder of United for Change. You know, this was less successful than Change UK, because while they got obliterated in a general election, this party never got to the point of standing in a general election. They got funding from billionaires, but they couldn't even get, I mean, a single representative elected or even standing anyway. This guy's a complete failure. And now he's saying what Keir Starmer needs to do is not have any policies. There wasn't a single policy mentioned in that article. He just needs to purge the left and hope for the best. It's completely pathetic. Let's end tonight's show there, Dahlia. It's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you on this Wednesday evening. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be back. Thank you, as ever, for watching Tisky Sour. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.